As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. So a Fed speak today. Collins, Bowman, Harker, Jefferson on tap. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester speaking to the FT and saying, quote, I don't really see a compelling reason to pause. I would see more of a compelling case for bringing rates up and then holding for a while until you get less uncertain about where the economy is going. Here's some good news. Bob Michael takes the other side of that, of JP Morgan Asset Management, saying that we are going to get a pause. We expect the Fed to pause hiking rates at the June FOMC meeting and believe we have seen the last rate hike for this cycle. And the good news for Bob Michael is it sounds like his boss agrees with him. Take a listen. You know, my simple view is that, you know, the, the, the right to pause at this point has been a big increase, you know, 500 basis points or so. Take a pause. But I do think it's possible they're going to have to raise a little bit more. Take a pause. It sounds like, like a Fed official. Ready like, to go. No, no. Just, he looks oh, like oh, a oh, Treasury Secretary. Secretary. Right, okay. He looks Mellon-like. Ready to That's serve the country. Andrew Mellon. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see Bob Michael as undersecretary? I can see that I can happening. I see that. Joining us now, Robert Michael. Bob Michael, head of fixed income, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And I want to go back to 1984. You're a youngling at Bankers Trust. Ian Rush is with Liverpool. They're doing better than good. This is way, way back. And the basic idea is we used to clip coupons. Would you be sitting with Mr. Diamond now saying that we can make coupon and total return now? Are we going to see price up, yield down in a basic bond portfolio? I can't tell you how relieved I am not to hear him tell me that I should be preparing for 7%. <laughs> so uh, I'll take what I can from him that we're due for a pause and that should relax the markets. No, 100%. This is the time where you clip coupons because yields have reset materially higher from where they were at the end of 2021. Actually, when you look at real mm -hmm. yields in the bond market, they're the highest level going back 15, 17 years. We're going to get some capital appreciation on top of the coupon clipping. I'm looking for close to double-digit returns on the Bloomberg right. aggregate over the next year. This is a key statement. And what's important about this is Mr. Diamond, back to bank one, actually knows what an S&P blue book is. I mean, you have a blue book and you have bonds in it. You go through and you try to buy bonds for price up, yield down. Which kind of bonds will give you the best pop there to get your double digit return? Well, we're certainly intermediate government bonds look good to us. So we're thinking the five-year treasury, we feel we've been given a gift in here with the backup in yields. Sure, we swung a little bit low in yields. The market got all excited. Now it's going the other way. Um, we do think that we're going to see 3% across the coupon curve by the end of the summer. And wow. the five-year seems to be the sweet spot. So we like that. 
and then we like high quality credit. So for sure, we're going into investment grade corporates. We're actually starting to see a lot of overseas investors returning to the U.S. investment grade corporate bond market. Um, they're attracted by the yields there. The yields are done, and it folds right into the disinflation, deflationary Chinese impulse. Let's unpack I mean, some of this. huge statement. Just on the yield curve, for people who aren't familiar with what drives different parts of the yield curve, what is special about a five-year maturity? Why is that the sweet spot for you? Because it gives you a couple of things. One, it, it gives you a reasonably high level of yield. Sure, it's not cash. Cash is sitting out there at over 5%, but that's the cash trap at this part of the cycle. You put money there, and then a year from now, it's gone. Your your cash run rate is probably below 4% a year from now. Um, so you've lost all of that, and then the yield curve starts to adjust to a central bank that's cutting rates again. We still think we're going to be in recession by the end of the year. Everything that's happened so far this year continues to tell us end of the year recession and first Fed rate cut in September. And I know the recent data throws some of that into speculation, not in our book. Things are playing out the way they should exactly. So five year in the treasury market, one, got it, okay. IG, tons of demand coming from abroad, got that okay. High yield. You've got, within your call, a rate cut call in September. Does it make sense to be buying high yield and taking on more credit risk at a time where the Fed's going to be cutting rates because you anticipate the economy is going to weaken? So I'm listening to the conversation at the start about the equity market and how we're isolating NVIDIA and a couple of things have driven this rally, but there are other things that are lagging. Now I'm a bond guy which makes me an equity market expert. Um, but I see a <laughs> lot of- <laughs> I see a lot of, yeah, exactly. I see a lot of what's going on in the equity market and the high yield market, and we've parsed through all of this. And what you're looking at is the triple C universe is a thousand basis points over. So it's already coming under pressure. And the double B universe is in the 300s over. So that differentiation is already occurring. This is very different than where we were back in August, September. Whenever we hit 600 basis points over, pretty much most of the market was about 600 basis points over. That was probably the time to take a shot over the near term, now is not. Now the market is telling you there is differentiation beneath the surface. Investors are seeing cracks forming and they're trying to get out of the way. You said that things are playing out as they should to get to a recession by the end of the year and to get a Fed to cut rates by September. Does that mean that we're in this sort of inflection point, that we're going to see a rapid deceleration in some of the economic data in a way that we just haven't yet with all the upside surprises? Absolutely. And and we've talked about this before. From the last Fed rate hike until recession, it's historically averaged about a 13-month period. So that long and variable takes time. We're now getting into a year and a quarter. We're going to start hitting the window when the 475 basis point rate hikes start to hit. And you're already hearing about the funding pressure to businesses and households at a higher rate level. It's causing them to rethink things. And then the higher cost of everything, that's causing them to rededicate where their spending goes to. So that catch up is coming in some of the inflation data we're looking at, Europe overnight or this morning, 
uh, came in soft. And I know Italy surprised a little bit to the upside, but everything seems to be slowing down. The one thing that seems to have gone under the radar, forget about what's going on in China. Look at the Bloomberg Commodities Index. It was 140-ish about a year ago. It's below 100 now. And the trend is diving south at a rate that you only see headed into recession. So the weakness is there. The cumulative and lagged are catching up. This is important. A lot of people push back against commodities being a real signal this time around. They say this time is different with a lot of different things. And I could see- Right, you don't use them for anything. But hold on a second. But here's the issue. People saying that because of China- and the inability to get that right because of Russia and their willingness to pump much more than their allotted amount to try to get money to fund the war. Because of all of these issues, you're seeing distortions in the commodity market that do not comply with what you're seeing on the ground. How much are you using this as a key signal saying we're where we should be? Well, you still have very low unemployment in the U.S. Everyone's talking about 3.5% unemployment. Everyone's talking about wages have gone up and that there's a stickiness to core inflation. Everyone's talking about consumers want to spend on travel and leisure. So the, the demand is there. But if the demand is at a high enough level, you are going to see commodities prices pushed higher. People are spending on things and buying things. It's just not at a rate that sustains itself with the amount of supply we're now seeing. The bottlenecks have cleared. Bob, this is awesome. Bob Michael at JP Morgan Asset Management. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We're going to go to the congressman from in between the Cubs and the Brewers, Janesville, Wisconsin. Brian Stile joins us now, Republican from Wisconsin, with all that heritage of former Speaker uh, Paul Ryan. Congressman, I'm going to go back to uh, the election of 2018. You won with 51, maybe 52 percent of the vote. You've done better in recent elections, doing better, like 60 percent or, or whatever. I want you to comment on the vociferous conservative Republicans and what they're doing to Republicans who are more middle of the road. What is the damage being done by the strident Republicans to those more in the middle of the road? This vote is going to be a little bit of a vote of strange bedfellows. I think what you're going to see is at the end of the day, there's some members that are going to allow perfection to be the enemy of the good. All of us, I think, would like to see us get our true fiscal house in order in the United States. This bill is only a step in the right direction, but it's a step in the right direction. It's the largest spending cuts that we're going to ever see in the United States of America. 
It has work requirements. It helps workers get back to work. And it does all this without raising taxes. Right. And so at the end of the day, there's some people that would like to see a perfect bill. But I think if we have a good bill, you got to vote for it. Congressman, Jim Garrity in the Washington Post had a brilliant half paragraph yesterday which said, look, the Republicans have a narrow majority in the House. Can you expand that power in Washington with President Trump after this budget debate? Can you can you get there with Donald Trump in November of 2024 to move beyond a narrow majority in the House? I think what we're going to see now to the election in 2024 is a lot of voices coming to the table. And I think the one that's going to be successful is the candidate that's going to talk about the future of the United States of America, about how we're going to grow the economy and address the fiscal situation that we're in. We're going to have a number of voices at the table. I don't think that's a bad thing because I think we need to dramatically change course in Washington, in particular following two years of dramatic increases of spending. A lot of people talk about the real discussion being entitlements and whether Social Security checks are going to have to be uh, reduced, whether Medicare and Medicaid are going to have to receive less funding. Are you putting those things on the table in your discussion about further uh, fiscal restraint? In this bill, we're only really dealing with 11 percent of the federal budget and dealing with 11 percent. We got one point five trillion dollars of savings for the American people. But you're right. At the end of the day, it's the entitlement programs that are driving costs higher. This is going to be an opportunity here to bring Democrats and Republicans to the table to address those programs and truly protect, in particular, Social Security and Medicare for generations to come. But that's going to require a bipartisan approach of folks coming to the table, encourage of candidates who are running for president in 2024 to talk about the reforms that are ultimately going to be needed. There's a, a large question around whether that will actually happen, and we've been having it with a lot of cynicism. I'm sure uh, you have your own with insight from inside the Beltway. Wendy Schiller of Brown University was on the show earlier, and she said Kevin McCarthy will remain Speaker of the House simply because the Democrats will back him if the Republicans won't, because at least it will be some sort of cohesive voice that is better than the alternative. Does that concern you, that Kevin McCarthy will remain Speaker, but perhaps only at the behest of Democrats who are concerned about the alternative? I actually disagree with the analysis. I think Kevin McCarthy will remain speaker with Republican votes. I actually don't even think you'll see a motion to vacate. We had a robust family conversation last night into the late hours of the evening talking about this legislation. And while it's true, there are some Republicans that would like to see a better bill. They think that they could get a perfect bill. At the end of the day, I think everybody in the room recognizes that this bill is a step in the right direction, and they're appreciative of the Republican negotiating team that moved the ball forward. you got to remember, we started with the president saying that he was going to refuse to negotiate. He put his head in the sand. He went to Delaware, went off to Japan rather than negotiating. And at the end of the day, we came back with $1.5 trillion in savings. You sound like Paul Ryan on an off day. Come on, Congressman. Let's be, come on. What I'm hearing in the zeitgeist right now from Anne-Marie Hordern is the Democrats are taking a victory lap because they pretty much got what they wanted. Moderate Republicans like you are saying, okay, let's get this done and move on. And you got a bunch of people trying to block this and shut down the government. I got to go back to the fact you lived Paul Ryan's decline as Speaker of the House. I want to go from Boehner to Ryan to McCarthy. What does a speaker have to do now not to be Paul Ryan, not to be John Boehner? I think actually the Republicans are quite unified in the House right now. And I think that shows when we passed the Limit Save Grow Act. Many people across the United States underestimated the ability of Republicans to come together and unify and pass a bill. 
In fact, President Biden didn't think we could do it either. That was part of his negotiating tactics. And at the end of the day, we came together. I think the Republican conference in the House is quite unified to address the spending challenges that we face. But, you know, the speaker, okay, I'll go with that. But the answer is, John, uh, the, the speaker, the speakership here is under real threat and it comes up suddenly. Did it come up suddenly, Congressman, for Paul Ryan? Was everything fine and then, boom, you're his aide in office and all of a sudden, boom, he's under threat by these Republicans? I was working in the private sector for quite some time. So I wasn't on Capitol Hill for about 20 years before I ran for office. But I think what you see is at the, at the end of the day that these things can rise on occasion. But if you talk to Republican members, we're unified in the House of Representatives. Okay. I think everyone recognizes that this is a good bill. There's just some conservative and Republican members that would like to have a better bill. That's not the bill that we're, that's on the table. Congressman, I'm just a spectator and watching this play out for a long time, both within the United States and abroad as well. And every single time we get into this debacle, we just raise the debt ceiling again and again. And again, and again, whether that's a Republican president or a Democratic president, it's the same outcome. We raise the debt ceiling. Brian, you heard J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon come in from the break there saying, I wish one day they'd get rid of the whole debt ceiling thing. Why do we still have it? And isn't it somewhat embarrassing for the president, whether Republican or Democrat, to go abroad to places like Japan for the G7 to try and lead the global effort on a whole bunch of issues to then be looking back and have this EM-type debacle playing out at home. In a period of time of divided government, there's actually few opportunities to negotiate the spending reforms that are needed, in particular a period of time when executive authority has grown so dramatically. In this bill, we actually address the fact that the president tried to dramatically alter student loan payments. That never went through Congress in the first place. Unfortunately, based on executive overreach, what we have is so few opportunities to get spending under control where the executives, both parties are absolutely right, continue to spend money through executive action. And this negotiation allows us to actually bring the president to the table and have a conversation about how we're going to get spending under control. And I think, again, at the end of the day, this is overall a good bill moving us in the right direction. Yeah, the one bill aside, Congressman, don't you see where this is going, though, that ultimately, and we're out of time, so if you want to continue this conversation, by all means, come back another time. It just feels like we're in the process now of deliberately manufacturing crises to do exactly what you just explained. And at some point, that's going to erode the confidence in this country and potentially the US debt market too. So we've got to leave it there. Congressman, if you want to continue, happy to do that another time. Congressman Brian Steele there of Wisconsin. Right now, we're going to talk the talk of the moment NVIDIA with Angelo Zeno, senior equity analyst at CFRA, who in a brilliant note has the courage to write what everybody's thinking, which is the only way you can justify this is to extend your timeline. Angelo, you go right out to 2024 and you say, look, with a 25% growth pop, you're buying a 40 multiple stock. Why don't you extrapolate out to 2025. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think you can. I, I think there's you know, always danger with kind of extrapolating the numbers out, right? 
But I will say this, we are believers in kind of the, the entire NVIDIA story, in kind of the, the, the AI story, the fact that kind of GPUs are going to increasingly represent a bigger percentage of CapEx dollars for these cloud companies. We do think over time, um, over the next three to five years, um, the, the, the compound and annual growth rate for GPUs, and specifically that of NVIDIA, on the accelerator side of things in the cloud, can grow at an annualized pace of north of kind of 20 to 25%. And that can kind of get you to an EPS growth rate over time for NVIDIA, again, north of uh, 20%. If you're a believer that, you know, the top line for this company can continue right. to grow at a mid to high teens percentage pace. Are there other NVIDIAs out there? So we actually wrote a piece back in late March about kind of the, the biggest winners of kind of the generative AI boom within the semiconductor industry. And we kind of pointed to four names at that point in late March. And those four names were one, of course, NVIDIA. AMD is, is another name, clearly a beneficiary in the GPU side of things over time as well. And then the other two names are more kind of network connectivity type names. And they were... They were um, Marvell, as well as Broadcom, a name that we think is highly underappreciated, a, number, a name that's going to report tomorrow night after the close. I'm wondering what a tech company is right now and which companies can actually take advantage of artificial intelligence and some of this technology. Very clear cut, uh, AMD or uh, NVIDIA. But what about Meta? What about just on a broader sense, other companies that could potentially gain from the productivity of investments in artificial intelligence? How do you value which companies will gain and which actually won't at all and potentially could even lose? Yeah, listen, I think that's probably the most important question we get from investors right now. It's um, from a monetization perspective, who are going to be the biggest winners kind of from this AI boom? And that's really, an, you know, it's a tough question to answer. I'd say, you know, the, to your point, kind of the easy answer right now is on the semiconductor side of things. It is on the infrastructure side of things and kind of playing that. And that's clearly where the, the kind of the, the action has been here in recent weeks. Now, when you kind of look kind of fo more forward looking in nature, when we think about some of the larger capital stocks, I'd say uh, Microsoft clearly at the top of the list in our view. I mean, with, with Copilot out there, with the potential to kind of see significant pricing power on that side of things, we think the light of, light of, uh, line of sight is, is highly visible in one where over the next decade, should be a clear winner in our view. Now, other names like a, an Alphabet as well as Meta, we think are going to be a little bit tougher calls. And that's why you don't see kind of the multiple to the extent where you, you see that of the Microsofts of the world. And, and a big reason for that is, um, you know, are they going to get really get the ROI potential um, or are they going to give uh, advertisers out there the ROI um, from this AI boom? We think there is some kind of positives out there, but I don't think um, it's as clear as potentially a name like Microsoft out there. So you can be a believer in this story, and I think that anyone who sees the way that people are using chat GPT-like artificial intelligence has to be something of a believer, if not at least a very open recipient of this information. But you do have some naysayers out there about the valuation, basically saying that the rally that you have seen so far 31% in big tech stocks so far this year is at risk of petering out this, according to city analysts, basically saying that positioning is just such that it's rife for profit taking. I mean, do you sort of play into that? Do you just sort of look past that? Do you think that anything like that will just be a buying opportunity? How are you playing sort of the tactical ride up that we've seen in prices that can't really continue at this pace? Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, in terms of the performance here, there, there is, we think, going to be some sort of AI fatigue here, potentially in the coming weeks, some sort of digestion that's probably going to be needed. Now, that said, I mean, 
we remain very big believers that um, the valuation actually is not as extended, I think, as many people out there think, especially as you kind of look out to a calendar 2024 basis for names like an NVIDIA and others, where kind of they are within their five to 10 year histor historical ranges, especially when you start thinking about kind of the growth um, tied to a number of these names. I'd also point to, you know, names like a, a Microsoft and others um, where, listen, um, at this point in time, I'd say kind of the risk to the downside on EPS estimates are probably um, very low and, and there's probably upside potential to those estimates. So we kind of continue want to, we want to be long on a lot of these names that are AI related. And I would say kind of, um, you, you, you kind of want to have a basket of names. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket and you want to be buying kind of on any, any pullbacks. But listen, it's definitely gotten a bit hot to an extent, especially on the semi side of things. But um, the four names that we highlighted, we think continue to be the biggest winners and the names you want to buy on those pullbacks. You want to be long. Some people feel like they have to be long. I was just going through the analyst recommendations. I love this. 49 buys, eight holds, and one guy who couldn't care less about career risk with a sell. Now, Angelo, that's what I wanted to finish on. Do you sense the so-called career risk associated with this, given how quickly it's moving? Is there pressure <laughs> that you have to be long? I think that's a great point. I mean, listen, I, I, I think, listen, I think there's always risk of kind of, um, you know, there's always risk on that side of things. But, you know, we, we are fundamental by nature. And um, to us, the fundamentals are screaming by right now. And for that reason, I think you continue to need to, to pound the table on these type of names. And I think especially on a name like NVIDIA, when you kind of look at the multiples at about 40 low 40s on a calendar 24 basis, and then you look at the growth tied to it, three to five years from now, and you kind of look at how early we are, if you're a believer of kind of, let's say, autonomous vehicles and, and what have you, um, it's there is risk to potentially having a sell to be tactical in nature rather than kind of beating kind of the, you know, the, the table on the longer term outlook on these areas. And I think that's what you need to do um, for investors out there right now. Interesting. Angelo, always great to hear from you. Thank you. Angelo Zina there of CFRA. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. got to catch up with Emily Rowland, co-chief investment <coughs> strategist at John Hancock Investments. Emily, credit where it's due. I've been speaking <laughs> to you all year. You push back against that Europe euphoria. You remain committed to the growth equity story, the United States over the rest of the world, not the rest of the world over the United States. Emily, are you sticking with it? 
Yeah, John, we are absolutely. And it does feel like markets are sort of getting the memo right now in terms of the macroeconomic environment. You know, we're looking at decelerating growth, as you all have mentioned, uh, disappointing data overnight in China. This morning we saw Japan industrial production and retail sales both disappointing. And you've seen this big rotation into U.S. markets, and that's been exhibited by a lot of the cross-asset uh, action, uh, seeing a bid for treasuries. Finally, over the last couple of days here, you're seeing the dollar get a bid. And of course, this massive rotation into U.S. quality growth stocks, which we've talked about uh, for some time. So that's got some key implications for portfolios, especially if you mm -hmm. think about, you know, some of these trend-following strategies that have bought, you know, the Japan, they've bought Europe based on right. positive price momentum. You might see that reverse and actually exacerbate uh, some of the flows no. out of those areas of the market. You're going to get me in trouble mentioning the trend-following strategies. Emily, I'm glad you mentioned Japan. We haven't mentioned that this morning, and those were shocking uh, numbers. Within this is sticky inflation. Everybody's doing real analysis, but we live in a nominal world. Are we going to be surprised by okay revenue growth that supports U.S. blue chips? Well, I think it's a great point because inflation has definitely helped these companies that have a lot of pricing power, especially companies that have high operating leverage. And we've seen that be absolutely critical in terms of supporting margin. Uh, we think it's going to be hard to sustain that going forward. Of course, bottom line costs are elevated, whether it's the cost of capital, um, wage growth still fairly elevated, though there are signs that that's coming down. And then clearly demand is starting to slow. We're seeing that way back in the supply chain. If you look at things like the ISM index of new orders, which is our favorite leading indicator. Uh, no offense, I know everybody has a favorite leading indicator, but that's ours at John Hancock. And that's going to put... Uh, uh, pressure on margins. It's going to cause companies to need to defend their margins going forward. And that's ultimately going to result in the unemployment rate rising. We haven't seen that happen yet, but we think that that's something that comes in the next couple of quarters here. There's been a growing theme in a lot of the notes that I've been reading about this inflection point that we seem to be coming up upon. Not that just that we've been halfway through the year, but also that some of the main factors driving the first half are shifting. Do you see that as well? And what are going to be the features of this inflection point? Yeah, well, some of the main drivers that have been supporting the market, we've, we've talked about it, was really China reopening uh, back in the fourth quarter of last year and better weather in Europe, which caused this massive rotation into European equities. It caused the dollar to weaken, um, which really supported risk assets. There's been almost a perfect correlation with the dollar weakening and risk assets rallying and vice versa. And you're seeing some of those things shift now, again, as this rotation comes back to the U.S., the economic data, not great across the globe, but it's actually better in the U.S. right now, which is a big shift over the last couple of quarters. So stronger dollar bid for treasuries. We think that's where some of the opportunities are from here. And I think that, again, the market action of the past couple of days to us makes a ton of sense, given the fact that we are in a decelerating growth environment and that recession is likely to unfold. Emily, great call. So far yet today on the equity market together with the team. Thank you. Emily Rowland of John Hancock Investment Management. William Lee joins us now, Chief Economist at Milken uh, Institute. Billy, let's start with Greenspanian 101. Is China in their slowdown going to export disinflation and deflation? 
Well, China can't export much of anything right now, but I hope what they do is disinflation uh, for the rest of the world. Right now, China's uh, recovery has really faltered. Um, we can see that the Piet not only is manufacturing down, but it looks like the, the consumption is, is on its way going to, to go down as well with unemployment rates uh, at 20% for youth unemployment. So China is not in good shape right now. And I think we are looking around and seeing what is going to pull China out of the doldrums. What is the degrees of freedom an autocracy has Sunday afternoon, New York time, when they're supposed to provide stimulus? It's pretty limited, right? Because not only is the federal uh, debt uh, out of control, the municipal level debt is out of control. So the, the, the general channels for fiscal policy have been through the municipal governments to try to hire more people, build more projects and stuff like that. Well, right now, they, they, they can't do that. So the, the amount of fiscal policy that we have uh, is, is really limited. And monetary policy, I mean, you can lower rates, but people are just going to you know stay there and, and not borrow because they're going to ask themselves, where am I going to spend the money in order to make money in the future if the demand is so slow. So China right now is snowballing into a, a fairly bad uh, static plateau. Static plateau that's been priced in or not, Bill? You know, the, the, um, I, I think one of the things that we have to look at is where is it being priced? One of the things we talked about at the Milken Conference uh, that just ended a month ago was that a lot of the investors going to China going to the private markets, and, and we really can't see a lot of that. Uh, but in order to get into the private markets, one thing that everyone made clear was they needed good Sherpas. They needed someone to guide them through to find good investment opportunities. And a lot of uh, the investors claim they've got some good Sherpas there and they're getting good bargains uh, uh, because the slowdown is affecting valuation both in public and private markets. But the real question to ask is, will you get the kind of returns you're hoping for? And there I have my doubts because the demographics are working against them. And on top of that, the, the, um, the, the possibility of technological change, which would be the one thing that boosts the Chinese economy, is also not going to be there because policy has been really anti-innovation, anti-technology, uh, and, and it's hard to see that changing. Which is, John, what you were pointing to when you were taking a look at the tech indexes over in China versus the tech indexes in the U.S. and that huge bifurcation uh, between the two. Bill, that's maybe on a domestic level. What about internationally? Has this been priced in in terms of the impulse that China had on Europe? We were talking about the euro and how much it's yeah. come off some of its earlier highs. Well, the renminbi right now is, is weaker than it's been for, for God knows how long. Uh, and so in that sense, it's being priced in. But for me, the foreign, FX market is very short term. The real question is, are investors pricing in growth opportunities over the next five years? Are they putting the marginal dollar into China or are they putting it somewhere else? And I think more often than not, they're looking somewhere else. Bill, you've got a great ability to move away from the Pacific Rim and the three cities we focus on all the time. What's the rest of China look like with the unemployment rates that are being reported? That's a great question. Uh, up until now, I would have said um, the, the prospects for any kind of innovation, any kind of uh, employment growth are going to come out west because the, the, the Milton study for the greatest performing cities in China uh, landed on Chengdu as a, a small yeah. innovation hub. <clears throat> and, and, and we still stand by those numbers. But unfortunately, these numbers are getting dated. And right now, I'm not sure if even out west, the innovation hubs right. will be able to give the kind of employment that we, they hope for. We've been here before. 
And the answer is Beijing always blinks and moves away from a totalitarian mindset, the autocracy of President Xi, and they move to some form of liberality and capitalism. You're saying that's not going to happen this time? See, he's pointing to me. On radio, you can't see that. <laughs> Professor Lee is, I'm going to, I got to duck because the chalk's coming in. Tom. Uh, President Xi's blinking is going to involve maybe a slightly different wrinkle. He's going to rely on nationalism, perhaps, uh, some militarism, uh, some expansion of, of hubris into the rest of Asia, because after all, he wants Asia to be the currency area for the China and for the renminbi. So, so I think these are the kind of places we should look for any kind of uh, resuscitation of, of, you, of, of Chinese nationalism, which is they're going to try to instill pride in the Chinese people without giving them jobs. And, and that's going to be a, a cute trick. Well, how do, what does that mean in terms of international business? And I say this as J.P. Morgan has their conference and plays nice, albeit in a brilliantly diplomatic, pro-American, but also pro-China kind of speech by Jamie Dimon. How much can you really see a decoupling or a willingness to exacerbate that on the Chinese side in light of the economic challenges? Well, Lisa, we have a love fest by U.S. CEOs uh, going back to Tim Cook and now Elon Musk. And, and Jamie Dimon is very slick in being able to say, I'm a true American. I really am a patriot. Uh, so when you vote for me, remember that, even though I'm asking you to come to China and support my people. Um, and, and I think going forward, we're going to see more of that because the question is, the people who are in China have to contain their, maintain their business and, and really contain what they've gained. Um, but the marginal dollar, the investors here, sitting here in the West thinking of going to China, uh, what are they going to see? And I think they're going to see a lot of opportunities in ASEAN, in Korea, and in the quad countries surrounding China, because that's where a lot of the innovative uh, uh, industries are moving to. I want to end the conversation where we began, where you're talking about sort of a stagnant plateau. What is that stagnant plateau in China? What is that rate of growth that's going to be the new normal and going to drive demand for the luxury goods that have gotten bid up for commodities that have surprised a lot of people to the downside this year? Well, Lisa, the, the official number is a five-handle for growth going forward, and I think you're going to see more likely a three-handle than five. So I think that's the kind of order of magnitude you're thinking of, because with population stagnant, uh, any kind of massive productivity growth can't get them above three. For obvious reasons, Bill, market participants are going to be very interested in the next move on stimulus to get the PMI back above 50. As you know, that's not what the leader of the Chinese Communist Party is going to be focused on. They're going to be taking a multi-decade view. And Bill, I'm far more interested in the kind of fiscal moves that they make to stimulate more investment in certain parts of the economy that are going to be highly competitive with the United States and Europe, particularly as the US retrenches and refuses in some parts to do business with the Chinese government. Now, Bill, what are you focused on with regards to that? Well, absolutely. Uh, in fact, if you look at where the Chinese are meeting and where they're not, they're not meeting with uh, Defense Secretary Austin, so they're not, they don't want to talk military because they, we know what they're going to do there. It is not very powerful for the U.S., but I think the thing place that they're meeting with is Gina Raimondo, also Commerce Secretary. They're hoping to leverage some, some action on the tariffs. Uh, they're have, hoping to leverage some action on cutting the, uh, the semiconductor restrictions, and their information blackout is going to leverage uh, 
what our investors actually see. Um, they're going to shape the story for global investors to be so wonderful that they uh, that investors can't resist coming. But in order to do the due diligence, the required information to do the due diligence is something that's being restricted uh, as we speak by the Chinese government. And going forward, I don't see that lifting. That last point is so important, Bill. Clarity, transparency. Yeah. How do I know what the unemployment rate actually is? in China. Measuring it is hard enough, but when we hear youth unemployment something like 20%, just how bad is it, Bill? It is that bad or worse, and if it wasn't worse, we would hear more about uh, informal data, uh, but instead we see companies like Wynn being wound down by the uh, government. We see due diligence companies like Bain uh, being queried by, uh, by, by, by the officials. So, so I think uh, the Chinese are making it very clear, we're going to feed you the information you need, but it's from us. Bill Lee of Milken. Hey, Bill, good to catch up, as always. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Plumber. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.